in celebration of Father's Day, I want to take a moment to acknowledge a few dads. Because these dads have really kind of laid it on a line and have put it out there for their kids. And I'm not suggesting this because they say so, but I have text message proof. And it starts by this one behind me that this guy is trying to communicate with his son. And I love this one. My son, I was 10 years old and my, he is my BFF, banned from fridge. Or the bottom one, NCFY, no car for you. So we're trying to meet, this dad here is trying to meet his child where they're at. The second one I want to acknowledge is his dad for caring and protecting their daughter. As a dad, it's hard to have a daughter who gets engaged. I'm not there yet, thank goodness. And how about this dad that isn't afraid to tackle life's difficult questions? You know, so often us dads don't communicate, so I want to acknowledge this dad's ability to try to communicate. <laughs> he may be a little confusing, I'm not quite sure where he is, but at least he is alive and communicating. And I want to acknowledge this dad for really opening up about his feelings for his wife. <laughs> that girl is probably scarred forever. And finally, this dad here, he has laid it all on the line and paid the ultimate price for his family. <laughs> Maybe he could have been a little more sensitive to what was going on in the restroom. All right, well, let's get us back on track this morning and let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to lead us. Dear Father, we do thank you for the gift of fatherhood. We thank you for the tremendous responsibility. We thank you for the tremendous privilege it is to lead your children. So Father, we just thank you for the work you do in our lives. And we just thank you that we can be fathers and be people that can follow you because we hold the Holy Spirit within us. So Father, we just ask you to guide us today and to teach us what you want us to learn. It's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. So we currently have pressed the pause button on our um, sermon series, Upside Down, our study through the Beatitudes. Ron is finishing up a tour with Bible Chapel folks in grief on the life, uh, grief, Greece, hopefully not out in grief, um, on the life and letters of Paul tour in Greece. He'll be back with us next week and we'll continue in wrapping up that sermon series uh, next time we're together. But this pause in this series allowed us to kick off a five-part sermon series called Unlikely Heroes, Even Me, where we're going to take a look at some of the most unlikely people in the Bible and see how God used them in amazing ways to serve him. Last week, we were together, we studied Esther, a Jewish orphan who was picked up out of her land and placed in the middle of the Persian Empire and God used her to save his people from extermination. And then today, we're gonna take the time to study Jonathan, an, another unlikely hero that God uses for his kingdom purposes. And to start our time together today, I wanna talk about friendship. And I wanna talk about what it means and what, what does friendship really mean to you? Is, is friendship the list 
of friends on your Facebook page, all 916 of them? Or is, does friendship mean something a little bit more personal, a little bit more intimate, maybe a little bit more meaningful? Maybe something that's closely more captured to, to one of these quotes I'm gonna put on the board is Alexander Dumas. He says, friendship consists of forgetting what one gives Forgetting what one gives and remembering what one receives. Or how about this one by Robert Brault? I value the friend who for me finds time on his calendar, but I cherish the friend who, does, who for me does not consult his calendar. Or Jess C. Scott that said, friends are the family that you choose. Or one of my personal favorites, true friendship is when you walk into their house and your Wi-Fi automatically connects. Because a true friend is going to share the Wi-Fi password with you, right? But friendships, we all have them. Some of us have many. Some of us have just a few. But how many of you have true friends? How many of you have faithful friends? Or let me ask you a more difficult question. How many of you are true and faithful friends? But before you answer that yourselves, I want to take the time to study this together and to see what God's word has to say about friendship. And as most of you know, there's plenty of verses on a topic in the Bible. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion who fools, of fools suffers harm. Or how about John 15, 12 to 13? My command is this. This is Jesus talking, right? He says, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. Now I can go on all morning quoting scripture after scripture after scripture that tells us what friendship is. But instead, what I wanna do is take a look at scripture and see true friendship modeled for us. And I think one of the best examples that we see in all of scripture is the friendship between Jonathan and between David. Now, many of you are sitting here, most of you hopefully have heard of David before. David was the one that went on to be king, the one that Jesus was ultimately delivered through, the one that was Solomon's father, the one that committed sin with Bathsheba. We've talked about David in here a good bit, a man who is after God's own heart. But some of you may be sitting here saying, who's Jonathan? I haven't heard of Jonathan before. Well, I'm glad that you asked, because we're going to look at who Jonathan really was. And to start, I want to start with a little background just to try to get our heads around what is going on. And I'm going to go all the way back to the desert, right? Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt from slavery, and they went wandering in the desert for 40 years. They were moaning, complaining. Moses was moaning, and God said, enough is enough. The first generation doesn't get to go into the promised land. He puts Joshua installed as a leader, and Joshua has the privilege of leading his people back into the promised land. And when they, uh, Joshua does an amazing work, and as his time is coming to an end, Joshua pulls all the Israelites together and said, all right, guys, listen, my time is coming to an end. You've got to finish the job. You've got to remove the remaining Canaanites. You've got to remove their idols. You've got to remove their religion. You've got to get rid of all that stuff. 
But the bad thing is the Israelites don't do any of that. And in fact, they turn to a life of worshiping the Canaanite gods and taking up their cultural practices. For 330 years, this bad cycle goes on at this time where the Israelites just get themselves in a mess. They they, they repent of this mess and God sends a deliverer to them over and over again. 12 times, as a matter of fact, that they go through this cycle and God responds by sending people like Gideon and Samson to rescue them. And at the end of this period, we see Judges uh, chapter 21, verse 25 simply says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everybody did as he saw fit. So you can imagine the mess that Israel was at this time. So to help them, God brings along Samuel and puts him in place. And Samuel does a great job, but his two kids are a complete train wreck. And the Israelites see that and they know it. And they're thinking there's no way that we are gonna follow those two guys. So the Israelites cry out to God and say, we want our own king. We wanna be like every nation. We want a handsome, tall king that's gonna lead us just like this other nation has. And um, uh, God gives in and gives them their first king. And that's who? Saul, right? But unfortunately for the Israelites, Saul isn't quite the king that he appears to be from an external standpoint. And the cracks begin to show in the surface. And over the next 40 years of his reign is all downhill from there. Ultimately, It leads in more of a dramatic fashion at the end where Saul is afraid, he's tired of waiting on God, he takes matters into his own hands, violates the priesthood, offers up an offering to God himself, and then God finally had enough and says, you are no longer going to be king. But while Saul is running amok, his son Jonathan was serving the people well. As a teenager, as a teenager, get this, saw, or Jonathan led a thousand people, a thousand troops into battle against the Philistines. In another example, Jonathan and a single armor bearer climbed a cliff to take on 20 Philistines, which were above them. See, during this time while Saul was a mess, Jonathan was proving his prowess. Jonathan was proving that he was a worthy king. Because he had the right to think that way because he was the next in line. He was the firstborn son and would expect to be king of God's people. But despite what Jonathan does, despite how he serves, God didn't choose Jonathan to be the next king. John, God chose David, a little shepherd boy that was going to be the next king. And get this, David waited 10 years before he took the throne. So 10 years. And in God's providence, he takes David and employs him in Saul's house to minister to Saul. Because when God removed his spirit from Saul, he inflicted him with an evil spirit. And David had this amazing ability to play the harp. And when he did, it would soothe Saul. So God took David and placed him inside of Saul's 
home inside the castle to minister to him. And he would come and go back and forth in Bethlehem to be able to do it. And it's during this time that David and Jonathan strike up this friendship when David is in the house serving in that capacity. Now it's also at this time that Goliath is creating a ruckus, right? He's the giant that came out, would yell at the Philistines, he'd put them down, he'd humiliate them. And the Israelites wanted nothing to do with fighting him. In fact, they were turning around and running. But the little shepherd boy says, he shouldn't be, they shouldn't be doing this. We need to go fight him. And David volunteers for the job. And he ultimately ends up talking King Saul into letting him go and do it. And I think we all know that King David, defying all the odds, well, David, I should say at this point, David, defying all the odds, defeats Goliath. Takes him down in a dramatic way. After this all transpires, we're gonna pick up this story in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So that's kind of the background and the context that we once set. So he defeats Goliath and now David and Saul are having a conversation. So 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse two. It said, from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. Okay, so before that, David was going back and forth between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, back and forth. But now he defeated Goliath. He picks up David and says, nope, you're not going back home to Bethlehem. You're going to stay with me. Well, why does he do that? This is the significance here because King Saul realizes God is with David. That's the only way that he defeated Goliath. And so King Saul knows David's the next king. So he takes him. And he puts him in his house and he cares for him. He knows what's going on. And Jonathan also understands what's going on. Look at verses, look at verse one first. It said, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. Jump to verse three. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. See, we can understand and rationalize Saul's response, right? God came to him and said, dude, you have screwed up. Your kingship is coming to an end. He knows that. God told him. He understands what his fate is. Takes him into his house and cares for him. But Jonathan, on the other hand, you got to be thinking about what going through Jonathan's head. He is next in line. He is next in line to be the ruler of God's people. He had fought hard. He had risked his life. He had relied on God. While he was out fighting, King Saul was under a pomegranate tree. While Jonathan was risking his life, King David was tending the, the sheep. And you, you would think that there would be some hint of Jonathan's disappointment that he wasn't going to be chosen of, as a king. But we see absolutely no evidence of this in Scripture. 
None of this. Not a hinge of disappointment. Not a hinge of selfishness. Nothing. His response is improbable. His response is unlikely because he doesn't express a single bit of disappointment and he simply puts his friend Jonathan first before his own life. And in doing so, Jonathan models one of six key attributes. I'm gonna give you six attributes today of a true and faithful friendship. And this is the first one right here that in doing this, in the way that he responded to, to David, Jonathan models that a true and faithful friend is not selfish or jealous. Okay, so let's continue on this story. So everything seems ideal, right? King Saul understands what's going on. He takes David, puts him in his house. He puts him in a place in his army. It goes on to say that David would do everything he did was, was great. Saul even would offer up one daughter. David declined. Saul offered up the second daughter. Uh, David takes him. So uh, David, her, David ends up becoming Saul's son-in-law. Everything's great there. We talked earlier with Jonathan. Jonathan's on board. He understands and handed over his robe, his tunic, his bow, his sword. He understands what's going on. And we're going to see here in just a minute that the people are happy what is going on. Look at verse 7, chapter 18, verse 7. So after this is defeated, all the people are, are cheering and thrilled that the Philistine has been beaten and are dancing and singing. Look at verse 7. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Well, maybe things aren't so well. Maybe the people were a little bit too happy for King Saul's liking. Look at verses eight and nine. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And the truth is that Saul did much more than keep an eye on David. Saul spent the balance of his reign chasing and trying to kill David. And the unlikely hero that helped David escape Saul's attempt was who? Jonathan, the very person that was overlooked as the next king of Israel. And through Saul's attempt to kill David and through Jonathan's attempts to protect David, we see true and faithful friendship really lived out. So verse eight, Saul's anger consumes him. So he issues an order to his people and to Jonathan to go kill David. But Jonathan steps up to protect his friend. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses one and three. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David, but Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning, go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. 
Can you imagine the tough spot that Jonathan's in? He's got his father, who's the king, who just told him to go kill Jonathan. But Jonathan's his best friend. Imagine that spot being in. But Jonathan understands what's going on. Jonathan understands what's right. And he makes the decision to protect his friend. And in doing so, I think Jonathan demonstrates the second key attribute of uh, being a true and faithful friend has your back even in difficult situations. That regardless of how hard things are, a true and faithful friend is going to stand by your side. And in doing so, look how Jonathan confronts Saul in verses 4 through 7 in chapter 19. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what, has he done, what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all of Israel. And you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to, kill, wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him, him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. So don't lose sight what's going on in this dynamic between Jonathan and his father Saul. This is his dad. This is the king of Israel that he's speaking to. And he's stepping up saying, dad, you got this wrong. You were just, you were just David's biggest cheerleader. A short time ago. He not only helped you, he helped all the people. Jonathan went back at his dad, the king, in a strong way. He didn't mince words. He stood up for who David really was. And I think in doing that, Jonathan demonstrates really the third key attribute that a true and faithful friend will defend you when others make false claims. Well, Saul's promise and his oath to not kill David last a very short time. Saul was inflicted by this evil spirit. Again, David's in playing the harp, soothing him. And then out of nowhere, King Saul launches a spear at David. And through the help of his wife, Michal, who is Saul's daughter, uh, David takes off running for the hills. And while on the run, Jonathan comes out to meet him to find out what is going on and why um, David left. Look at uh, chapter 20 now, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Said David, uh, David fled, um, uh, went to Jonathan. He says, what have I done? What is my crime, David said? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life. Never, Jonathan replied, right? Jonathan can't believe what David's saying. My father took an oath he wasn't going to kill you. Jonathan's saying, never. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. 
Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has hid, he has said to himself, Jonathan must know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. So think about the trust exhibited by David here. He's playing the harp, he's serving Saul. He gets a spear thrown at him, he takes off. He's gotta be wondering what is going on. I'm chosen king, I'm put in his, his place. I minister to him. He says he's gonna kill me, then he's not gonna kill me. Then I'm back ministering again, he throws the spear at me. He's gonna be thinking, what is, what is going on? And he had to, you would think, that he'd be saying, wow, does Jonathan have a part in this? Is he part of trying to get me taken out? But again, there's no evidence of that in scripture. And David freely goes to Jonathan to find out what is going on. And he doesn't know what to do. And Jonathan doesn't believe him. And you look, what Jonathan does in that time as I think he demonstrates the fourth key attribute that a true and faithful friend will be a confidant. Someone that you can always go to speak to and always expect truth in return. See, Jonathan, David trusted Jonathan. He knew when he asked that he was gonna get the real answer. And in this exchange, Jonathan, as I said, has this hard time believing that Saul went back on his word. But Jonathan was so adamant that Saul was doing this that Jonathan had to do something. Look at verse four. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. And the two friends go on to concoct a plan to figure out what Saul's true feelings and true intentions were. And I think in working with David to try to figure out what is going on, that Jonathan demonstrates the fifth key attribute that a true friend will help you work through your troubles. They don't go running for the hills when the times get difficult. While the friends put this plan into action, and then just as David promised Jonathan, Saul's true colors come out. His anger overtakes him and Saul orders them to kill David again. Jonathan tries to protect David and then Saul says, great, kill Jonathan too while you're at it. The, uh, he ex Jonathan leaves and goes out to meet David to share the sad news that he found out from his father. Continue verse 20, verses 41 and 42. It says, after the boy is gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and they wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have a sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. So we see bowing, we see crying, we see kissing. 
you can feel the emotion between these two at this very difficult spot in the relationship. And notice that it says that David wasn't the only one crying because a king's trying to chase him and kill him, but Jonathan was crying with him as well. Real and raw emotion. Jonathan here is demonstrating the sixth and final key attribute and that in a, tr a true and faithful friend will empathize with you during your times of trouble. Well, I just want to take a moment and just pause here for one second, and I want to address something that is very critical in today's society. Because those in the lesbian and gay community point to this very verse where they kissed each other, and also a verse, 2 Samuel 1.26, where um, David is actually eulogizing Saul and Jonathan. He goes on to say, your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that than a woman. That they point to these two verses to justify homosexual desire and behavior. And I want to be clear that this is simply an inaccurate and an unsubstantiated reading of God's word. God is clear throughout all of scripture that homosexuality is a sin. And there's nothing in the context of the Bible, there's nothing in the context of 1 Samuel, there's nothing in the context of 2 Samuel, there's nothing in the context of David and Jonathan's relationship that says God is okay with homosexual behavior. And anyone who suggests anything different is trying to, to read today's redefinition of sexuality back into God's truth, his unchanging word. And if you guys have questions with that, I would love to talk with you personally about that. But this friendship between Jonathan and David has nothing to do with homosexuality. Now after this emotional exchange between David and Jonathan, these two dear friends, they split and never see each other again. Jonathan and his two brothers go on to fight in battle after battle, and they end up being killed at the hand of the Philistines. Saul ends up committing suicide by falling on his sword, killing himself because he doesn't want to die at the hands of the Philistines. And then David, as we know, goes on to become king of God's chosen people. But regardless of how high and how many things that David had, he never forgot about his friend, Jonathan. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. So this is year after years of ruling. He's, on the, he's winning battles. He's got everything that he can imagine. He's thanking God for what's going on in his life. And in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, David asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And David's, David finds out that Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is still alive. He's crippled and living in lowly Lodabar. And David sends to have Mephibosheth brought to him. And we see this exchange in 2 Samuel 9, verses 6, 6 and 7. When Mephibosheth, son of David, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. And David responds, don't be afraid. 
Now, why would Mephibosheth be afraid? Because he was King Saul's son. And what did, what did kings do to all the, king, the previous king's family? They wiped them out. Mephibosheth probably figured that this was his end. But look what David says, don't be afraid for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. This amazing, years later, David was looking for a way to show honor to his friend, Jonathan. This unlikely hero had left a profound mark and had a profound impact on King David who was leading God's people. The same king that God would deliver Jesus Christ through ultimately. Now I know there, there are many notable relationships in the Bible. You've got Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and Peter, Paul and Barnabas, but there is just something different about this relationship with David and Jonathan. And I believe it's different because Jonathan served God and David as an unlikely hero. Think about it. Jonathan was the heir to the throne, the rightful heir. He worked hard while his father was lazy. He fought fearlessly while his father was a coward. He relied on God in his battle. And David, Saul relied on himself. But despite all of that, God chose the shepherd boy David as the next king. And how did Jonathan react? He gave him his robe and his tunic, his sword, his bow and his belt. He wasn't resentful. He was respectful. He wasn't spiteful. He was honorable. His reaction wasn't most likely. His reaction was very unlikely. You see, God, Jonathan had a choice. He could follow God's plans for his life and David's life, or he could have followed Satan's plan. It would have been easy for Jonathan to step in and take out David. He had his father's support, that's for sure. But instead, Jonathan was a true and faithful friend to David. He was not selfish. He was not jealous. He had David's back in some very difficult times. He helped him work through them. He was his confidant. He told him the truth. He empathized with him in his sorrow. I think Jonathan gives us quite the lesson in friendship. So let's go back to the question that I asked you to open the service. How many of you have true friends? How many of you have faithful friends? If you do, you need to thank God that you do. You need to thank God that he's put an unlikely hero in your life to support you, to pray for you, to challenge you, to empathize with you. More importantly, 
you need to thank them. And I'm going to challenge you to thank them. I want you to call them and say, thank you. Don't text them. We can see how bad text messages go. But I want you to call them and say, thank you for being my Jonathan. And you know what? Somebody on the other end of that line may say, who's Jonathan? But you know what you've just been given? An amazing opportunity to share the gospel with that person. I'm gonna ask you to do one more thing. And when you make these phone calls, I want you to email me. And I want you to tell me that you made that phone call and said, thank you. And I wanna know what came out of it because I wanna pray for you and I wanna pray for your friend. And I wanna thank God that he's given you a true and faithful friend in your life. Let me ask you a harder question. How many of you are true and faithful friends. How many of you have been there in very difficult times? How many of you have stayed the course regardless of how trying that relationship can be? If you haven't been, I challenge you to ask God for forgiveness because God has placed you as an unlikely hero in your friend's life and God needs you to challenge them God needs you to pray for them God needs you to speak truth into their lives God needs you to celebrate with them God needs you to be an unlikely hero with the friends that he has given you. I'm gonna ask the dads to stand up. Come on, dad, stand up. I know I'm not the only one in here. There's too many kids upstairs. Dads, we have an awesome responsibility and an amazing privilege. It starts with us. God has placed us the leader of our homes. And there's going to be times we don't do it so well. But God is calling us to be true and faithful friends to our wives. God is calling us to be true and faithful friends to our children. Because our children are going to learn how to be good and true and faithful friends from us. And I see what God is doing through your lives. And God is doing some amazing things through you. And I see a whole lot of unlikely heroes in here that's powered by the Holy Spirit. I am proud that you guys call this church home. Father, I thank you for every one of these men. 
I thank you for the gift and responsibility of being a dad. Father, it's intimidating at times. It's hard at times. But Father, we take comfort knowing that we don't do it alone. We do it powered by and guided by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray over these men that you give them the courage to be a true and faithful friend to their spouse, to their children, and to those that you have placed in their lives. Because Father, you need us to be unlikely heroes. And we thank you for that opportunity you give us to do so. Go before us and make our paths clear. And Father, I pray for everyone in here that you give every one of us a thankful heart for the friends that you've placed in our lives and give us the courage to say thank you and give us the courage to say I'm sorry because we truly do desire the unlikely heroes that they need in their lives. Thank you for choosing us to serve that role. And we know that we can do it in the power and the glory and the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray together. Amen.